Pod Save America is sponsored by the Financial Times. Knowledge is confidence, and reading the Financial Times means you can do more than just catch up. You can stay one step ahead across topics such as politics, tech, business, and climate change with articles like The Unexpected Revival of America's Trade Unions or How China's Slowdown is Deepening Hong Kong's Existential Crisis. Visit ft.com slash podsave to read free articles and subscribe. That's ft.com slash podsave. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's pod, the Biden administration faces a moment of truth over the escalating violence between the Israelis and Palestinians. Dr. Fauci is here to chat with Lovett about the CDC's new mask guidelines. And we take a look at a few stories we're watching closely this week, including the Philadelphia District Attorney's race, the Supreme Court's decision on a critical abortion rights case, and the future of HR1. Uh, but first, check out the Crooked Store for some great new additions. Like our Fauci Ouchy Band-Aid sets. Love it. Did you offer uh, Dr. Fauci in Fauci Ouchy Band-Aid set? I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't, John. <laughs> I don't want to have to say that to him. <laughs> uh, we also, of course, um, you know, we have our Doug on a Mug a presidential spouses mug. We now also have a new refill for Jill mug. Um, important thing about all of this is you can feel good uh, buying all this merch, knowing that a portion of every order goes to support vote writers. It's helping people across the country getting registered to vote. They do fantastic work. Shop now at crooked.com slash store. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, The violence between the Israelis and the Palestinians is one of the biggest stories in the world right now. It began last month when Jewish settlers tried to expel six Palestinian families from East Jerusalem, uh, which led to protests, which ultimately led Israeli police to conduct a raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque that left hundreds wounded. Hamas militants in Gaza responded by firing rockets into Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu responded by ordering airstrikes against Gaza, where the death toll has now climbed to at least 192 people, including 58 children. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have killed at least 13 Palestinians. And in Israel, there have been at least 10 deaths, including two children. One image that captured the world's attention over the weekend was the demolished building in Gaza where the Associated Press and Al Jazeera worked, a building that was targeted by the Israeli government that they claim was shared by Hamas. In addition to the violence between Hamas and the Israeli government, there's also been some of the worst violence and unrest between Jews and Arabs inside of Israel in over two decades. Tommy, that was my attempt at a quick summary of how we got here. Uh, what important context have I left out? Those are definitely the key events. I mean, the a little broader context is last week, the Israeli Supreme Court was supposed to rule on whether those families would be evicted from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. So that helped kind of bring it to the fore and make it a focal point. Um, and land disputes in East Jerusalem are incredibly sensitive for a lot of reasons, especially because you know any serious plan for a two-state solution envisions the Palestinian capital being in East Jerusalem. But a lot of right-wing Israelis, including a lot of people in the Netanyahu government, want Israel to control all of Jerusalem. So there's this concerted effort by settler organizations to evict some of these families, these Palestinian families from their homes, move Jewish settlers in. 
it highlights all the unfair ways that the uh, Israeli law treats historical claims to that land. So that ruling got postponed, but it also coincided with an annual Israeli holiday called Jerusalem Day that marked Israel's capture of East Jerusalem. And associated with that holiday, there are often uh, far right wing Israeli settlers uh, marching through the streets in, in that area. So it's an incredibly provocative set of actions. And so it became about something bigger than just a conversation about sex evictions. It was about, you know, Israeli sovereignty. Uh, and this is all in an area with these enormous religious uh, implications and significance for all sides. So it was this tinderbox of, of you know, Palestinian protesters, far-right Israeli counter-protesters, heavy-handed policing by Israeli police forces. And things really exploded when Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is one of the holiest sites in Islam. They fired stunner grenades, rubber bullets, and when people were worshiping. So that's when Hamas got involved, right? Like the Palestinians were not asking for them to be involved. They're just selfish assholes who want to make this about themselves. They're terrorists and, and arsonists, and they start firing rockets indiscriminately into Israel, which to be clear is a war crime. Um, and the good news is like a lot of those rockets were intercepted by this Iron Dome missile defense system, which, you know, prevented innocent people from dying. But then the IDF responded with intensive shelling uh, of targets in Gaza, and that's still ongoing. And you look, Gaza, just so people know, is one of the most densely populated areas in the world, um, and it's been controlled by Hamas since 2007. So it's sort of this, this open-air prison where the majority of people can't get in, they can't get out, they're just stuck there. And then you know, the, the last piece of broader context is there's just general political instability in the region because the Palestinian Authority uh, is feckless and corrupt, and they haven't even had elections since 2006. And the Israeli government has been paralyzed because they've had four elections in two years, but because of how their system works, no leader has been able to form a government. So they just go back to the polls and back to the polls. And Netanyahu is basically a, a caretaker prime minister right now, but he has been distracted by a bunch of corruption cases against him. So it's, um, you know, there was, it seems like some people were asleep at the switch in the Israeli government when it came to these tensions in East Jerusalem. What's your reaction been to Netanyahu's response to Hamas over the last several days? Obviously, the shelling uh, continues as we speak. It certainly seems disproportionate um, from everything that I've I've read and seen over the last several several days. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the mantra you like always hear from uh, U.S. officials and from the Biden administration right now is that Israel has a right to defend itself, and of course that is true, right? Like any leader would respond if rockets were fired into civilian areas, but. To your point, John, I do think that glosses over a more important question of, is this a proportionate response? Are these strikes going to save innocent lives or, or take innocent lives? And right now, I'm very worried about all these reports of civilian casualties and these residential buildings that are getting targeted because you know the way that um, Israeli defense officials often describe their military operations in these cases, they call it mowing the grass, which is a grill really disgusting, dehumanizing way of saying, like, once the fighting starts, we're going to take out as many Hamas fighters as we can. And we're going to take out as many rockets and as many tunnels that Hamas uses as we can before it stops. But like, it took three months to reach a ceasefire in the 2014 Gaza war. Thousands of people died. And the Israeli defense minister gave a speech last week where he said, if Hamas doesn't stop, the 2021 response will be worse than 2014. You know, he said, if Israelis have to sleep in shelters because Hamas is firing at them, then Gaza will burn. That's a quote from the defense minister. And to me, that is like, that's a recipe for escalation, for more innocent deaths. Um, and, you know, the average citizen in Gaza can't stop 
Hamas. They can't make them stop firing rockets. They can't help that Hamas is co-locating its operations in areas where they live. They just have to live through these bombing rates, you know? And I, I think that's why, like, calls for a ceasefire have to happen now, and that doesn't absolve Hamas. But there's this major power imbalance here, right? Like, Israel's a superpower with this advanced military, and it's funded by the U.S., and they they control most of the territory we're talking about. And I think that's why there needs to be more of a push to to call for a ceasefire immediately. Love it. What's your reaction been watching this unfold? You know, the especially the Israelis targeting a building that housed media outlets uh, because they say that Hamas was uh, co-locating there. You know, I, it's obviously been really hard to watch this unfold. And, and there was something that actually... <laughs> of all people, Barry Weiss wrote that really stuck with me, not because I agreed with it, obviously. Let me stay that at the, at the jump. Hear the rest of what I'm going to say before you tweet at me, please. Uh, Barry Weiss was a former Times columnist. She's now um, chief cancel culture correspondent for her own Substack. But she wrote, she said this about the deaths of Palestinian civilians uh, and children uh, uh, in an attempt to try to bring nuance to what she viewed as an anti-Israel anti-Semitic narrative that has taken hold. And she said, this is an unspeakable tragedy. It is also one of the unavoidable burdens of political power of Zionism's dream turned into the reality of self-determination. And I'll just be honest that like, it makes me so angry. Like it makes me really upset to see that because like I am a, (laughs) when I think of Israel, in my mind, it is like ineluctably, it it is connected not just to the Holocaust, but to the anti-Semitism Jews have faced forever, to the the fact that uh, after the creation of Israel, Jews had to flee Arab countries uh, or or were expelled from Arab countries into Israel. I think of the escape of Soviet Jews. I think of the fact that pogroms took place in Europe after World War II, in Poland, in Central Europe. Like I, I'm not talking about this just intellectually. Like in my bones, like as a Jewish person, I am a Zionist. I believe in it. It is it is my bias. It is how I approach these these questions. It is how I was raised. It is how I think about it. Like, I believe in the project of Israel. And what is so enraging about this is that that is then twisted by people like Netanyahu, by by the Israelis, by defenders of what Israel does, as to say, if you believe in Israel, this is what you must support. And not only do I think that's not true because it's morally wrong, like not only is referring to this as some unavoidable burden of power, like morally reprehensible, which is, I think, yeah, I'm taking this one sentence, but I think it speaks to a larger way in which these uh, actions are defended. I think it is counterproductive in a in a fundamental way that it does not bring us closer to the point at which Israel is free and safe because Palestinians are free and safe. It makes everything harder. It makes everything go on. It makes the animus worse. It makes the hatreds worse. It makes Israel more isolated, more alienated from from its from its neighbors uh, and from uh, the international order. It makes the day in which Israel is uh, at peace and sustainable uh, and safe and free further away. And I that that was sort of my reaction on top of what every agreeing with everything Tommy said, everything Tommy and Bed said on Pod Save the World. It was that. I don't believe what Israel is doing is morally right. I think it's repellent, but I also think it is not in the interest of those who believe in Israel, in the project of Israel. Yeah. No, I just, I mean, sort of watching this unfold, and many people have pointed this out, that um, this only seems to generate a lot of headlines when rockets start falling on Israel. But 
as Tommy pointed out, there's like a, a whole bunch of context that doesn't get as much headlines everywhere um, before the rockets start falling on Israel. And that's always the case every time there's, uh, you know, the conflict erupts um, between Israelis and Palestinians. And at the end of the day, you just have to understand that like the Palestinians don't have a state, nor do they live in a democracy, right? And, and they either need to have a state of their own or they need to be treated as equal citizens in the state where they live. And the Israeli government under Netanyahu does not want either of those things. Um, and that, and it's, it's, I think it's important to just focus sort of like on the Palestinians themselves, um, because sometimes we just don't talk about this stuff until Hamas starts firing off rockets. But Tommy, I do want to get your reaction because I know you were, I saw you tweeting about this over the weekend about um, Israelis targeting a, a, that, that building that housed both the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, like I want to be, I think that that was outrageous. And, and to love its one, I mean, I think it's incredibly stupid to bomb a, a building that you know houses media organizations. Like the world is watching. I assume that the Israeli government wants people to support their efforts, to think they're just, to think they're proportionate and wise. Uh, if there's some intelligence that shows that that building contained Hamas's version of the fucking Pentagon, I will, of course, look at that. I will take that on board. But I doubt that is the case. You shouldn't blow up a media building. And I also find it troubling that a, a bunch of big residential buildings have been destroyed. Even if the Israelis are clearing civilians out of places like that before they strike, where are these people supposed to live afterwards? You know, right? Gaza is being bombed into right. the Stone Age for the second time in, in, in decades. And so but also, we have to allow for complexity in all of this and for there not to always be black and white. It is true that Hamas operates in civilian areas to try to use innocent people as human shields. I talked to a reporter over the weekend who used to cover Gaza. He often worked out of that building, uh, that AP building several years ago. And he said that his understanding was that some element of Hamas had worked out of it at the time. I, I can't confirm that myself. That's what I was told. I was in no way trying to like suggest that that makes it justified to bomb that building. I, I do not. Because I, I just, I kind of think that the debate over whether there was some Hamas office in this building or not misses the point. Wars are often fought in urban areas like this. Militaries decide all the time not to strike targets because of collateral damage, not to strike targets because you would have curtailed the international media's ability to report on a conflict. And so in this case, the IDF had to know that the response to blowing up a building used by journalists would be enormous. They should have not, they should not have done it. And their failure to lay out evidence proving why this was some critical military target is allowing far more cynical views about why one might do that, like thinking maybe it's a good thing to curtail reporting on what's happening uh, in Gaza to fester and, and, to, and to be surfaced online. So I, I think it was an enormous error. Uh, it was immoral and it was strategically incredibly fucking stupid. Yeah. And I think it's also another example of sort of like the power imbalance that is not focused on enough between, um, you know, the Israeli government and and the Palestinians and sort of the disproportionate use of force and, and how they respond. I mean, that's to Tommy's point. It's I see this idea of like Israel has a right to defend itself, which it does, and that Hamas uses innocent people as human shields, which it does as a defense. But dozens of children are dead. So they're not like sometimes that means you can't do it yes the fact that means you can't right. you can't you can't do it it works using people as a human shield that you have to protect those children your job is also to protect those children killing civilians in gaza does not save civilians in israel period 
Right. So I want to talk about the the Biden administration response here. But Tommy, you and, and Ben Rhodes have been talking about how this time feels different in terms of, of who's speaking out, you know, not just activists and progressives, but a lot more Democrats, people who aren't usually even engaged on this issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and what do you think has, has sort of changed? Yeah, I mean, look, one thing that's changed, I mean, you, you talked about this earlier, John, about how sometimes the, you know, the, the press attention comes when the rockets start getting fired. In this case, there was a proliferation of, of videos and images out of Sheikh Jarrah, out of this neighborhood where these Palestinian families were being evicted. And there actually was a ton of coverage of it. It was getting discussed and it was getting uh, talked about. So I think that that was different and important. But now, you know, the bombing has started. Like, you're also seeing horrifying images on social media out of Gaza as well. I mean, it's just, if you see, I assume people have seen, there's a video of a little girl, 10 year old girl crying because her neighborhood was destroyed. There was a video of a man grieving the death Heartbreaking. of his, four children, four children. So how do you not respond on a human level when, when you, when you see this? And I also think that months of conversations about Black Lives Matter and social justice um, have, I, I think, encourage people to think about these evictions and the treatment of Palestinians and, you know, wanting to give them the human rights they deserve and the dignity they deserve as, uh, and view it in the same way. You know, I mean, we're talking about this in the same sort of social justice framework. I also think there's the fact that Bibi Netanyahu is a terrible leader. He's a bad guy. He's super right wing. He's corrupt. He's a racist. He's made tensions between Israelis and Palestinians worse. He did everything in his power to blow up the the Iran nuclear deal. And so that's an important distinction, right? Because like, I'm not criticizing the state of Israel. I'm not criticizing the Israeli people. I'm criticizing a shitty leader in the same way I criticized a shitty leader in the US named Donald Trump. You know, that's a distinction that sometimes gets lost in this. And then you're also seeing Democratic leaders that are just more willing to speak out about what's happening, right? Like Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. You have AOC, Rashida Tlaib, others delivering like statements uh, and really like uh, amazing speeches. But, you know, even associated with that, 28 senators led by John Ossoff are calling for a ceasefire. You know, you're seeing progressive Jewish Democrats in the House uh, calling for peace. So to me, this feels very different than the traditional sort of unquestioning calls for support for Israel's right to defend itself. People are willing to uh, be a little more specific about what's happening and, and, and judge the efficacy of these various, you know, military strikes and other actions. Yeah, I also want to focus in on that point that you made about sort of the parallels between BB and Trump. Uh, Bernie's op-ed, which is excellent, everyone should go read it. Um, he mentions that BB has cultivated quote an authoritarian type of racist nationalism in Israel, uh, and says that we've seen the similar rise of authoritarian nationalist movements around the world. I do think it's also easier for people to start seeing the connection more clearly um, between authoritarian types of racist nationalist governments all around the world, especially people who've experienced different levels of authoritarianism, often racist nationalism, both here in the U.S. under Trump and in other countries. And so I think as these mo movements give rise, it's for a lot of people who aren't as engaged in this issue, it's no longer just a question of like, Israel and Palestine, but it, the more the focus is on Netanyahu and his sort of corrupt racist government, I think the more people can start seeing the parallels between things that are going on all over the world. And the fact that he is barely holding on to power. Yeah. Uh, and right. exploiting this crisis. Uh, corrupt as hell. <laughs> I think sometimes people hear all this conversation about settlements and they wonder why, why are people talking about settlements all the time? Why is it such a big deal to build more apartments in, in you know, the West Bank or in East Jerusalem? And the reason is, 
at some point there will be so many Israeli settlements that it will be impossible to create a Palestinian state that is contiguous, that, it, that, is, that is one thing. It'll just be sliced and diced into little pieces. And, and that is by design. There are right-wing individuals in the Israeli government who want to move as many settlers as they can into those territories so that it becomes de facto part of Israel. Like the, the, the mayor of East Jerusalem said as much on the record when talking about Sheikh Jarrah. That same guy, by the way, also pointed at a Palestinian protester and said, next time we'll shoot you in the head, right? So there's some real extremists um, driving yeah. the debate on both sides. Well, and the other thing, you know, you hear people talking about a one-state solution, but like <laughs> Palestinians who live within Israel right now, Arabs in Israel are treated as second-class citizens, not just treated, but like Netanyahu has passed law after law making them second-class citizens during the time he's been in power. Yeah. And it's just that the the settlements make a two-state solution more and more difficult. You now see, you know, Peter Beinart in the New York Times talking about right of return that I remember when when we were in the White House... I, the Obama administration would face criticism for challenging Israel on settlements, for challenging Israel on some of its policies. And the view was, if you don't push for a two-state solution and try to stop some of the ways Israel is, for its part, making that solution more difficult, you are inevitably marching towards a one-state solution, which means a very different version. It means no longer being a Jewish state because of the inevitability of the demographics uh, in Israel and Palestine. And we see that playing out right now. Yeah. I just want to say, it is also true that uh, over the last several decades, the Palestinian Authority has walked away from or refused to accept deals that were negotiated by the U.S. or put forward by Israel that would have enormously benefited them today had they taken them. I this is by no means absolving yeah. the Palestinian yeah. Authority of, of their responsibility for the failure to achieve a two-state solution. The challenge now, though, like you see the Biden administration putting out a, a statement that they sent a letter to Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority. Well, Abbas has no power. No one listens to him. He has no moral authority. They delay these elections in part because I'm sure he thought Hamas would kick his ass. So like, uh, you know, right. that's when we talk about the power imbalance. Anyway, sorry to go up world on you. Pod Save America is brought to you by the Homegrown OKC podcast. There is way more to the Oklahoma City bombing than any of us knew. You can learn a ton about it on the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. It unpacks the tragic Oklahoma City bombing and how the event still ripples today and calls for political violence. Just days after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, America discovered the perpetrator was a right-wing extremist, Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today, as seen in the January 6th attack on our capital. Each episode of the Homegrown OKC podcast follows the story of McVeigh, a decorated Army veteran who became consumed with rage, went underground, and built a bomb that killed 168 people. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about a better understanding of the political environment in our country today. I think this is such an important story that tells you so much about radicalization, the far right in this country, the things that were simmering under the surface long before January 6th and some of the origins, which dates back to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, it's an incredible podcast based on an amazing book. I highly recommend it. To listen to Homegrown OKC, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. One place where 
it unfortunately doesn't seem like uh, Israeli-Palestinian politics have changed much is the White House, which released a statement on Saturday saying that Biden talked to Netanyahu and, quote, reaffirmed his strong support for Israel's right to defend itself from Hamas. The U.S. is currently blocking a joint statement from the U.N. Security Council calling for an immediate ceasefire. Today, Jen Psaki wouldn't say whether Israel's response is proportional and instead kept pointing out that there is, quote, quiet, intensive diplomacy going on behind the scenes. Biden is not just in a different place than progressives like AOC, who've been critical of his response. As Tommy mentioned, you get 28 Senate Democrats released a letter on Sunday night calling for an immediate ceasefire. The Biden administration publicly won't even go there. Um, You know, we're recording this right before Biden speaks to Netanyahu uh, and then said he he said he told reporters that he would have more to say after he has that discussion. Um, Tommy, why do you think the Biden administration is taking this position? Like, do you think there are certain political or national security dynamics shaping their response? What are they? I'm struggling to understand. I mean, look, I'm getting pretty frustrated with the Biden response. I know a lot of the people on his team who are working on this. I think they're good people. I think their hearts are in the right place. But I think the world is looking at this as a test of Joe Biden's commitment to human rights. And what, what, what it's bringing back for me is there was this mantra that I heard all the time from like very smart policy people when I worked in the government that said, when it comes to Israel, there should be no public daylight between the U.S. and Israel on on disagreements. We shouldn't disagree publicly. And I just don't agree with that. I think the fact that Israel is our closest ally in the region means that we should be able to have principled disagreements. And somebody over the weekend flagged uh, a press briefing by Ari Fleischer, like one of the, uh, not a good guy, uh, Bush spokesman. This was from 2002. He was asked about uh, Israel bombing Gaza in, in an incident that killed civilians. And Ari said that, Bush viewed that bombing as a heavy-handed action that is not consistent with dedication to peace in the Middle East. We we should be able Biden should be able to say that too. Obama should have been able to say that, right? And again, this is not about criticizing Israel. This is about criticizing bad decisions made by Netanyahu. And so, you know, right now the Biden team they're sort of hinting that they're calling for a ceasefire, but they're saying they're doing it quietly, and they also don't want to talk about whether they think the strikes are proportional or not, which that admittedly is a bigger deal because proportionality uh, gets you to a question about whether something is a war crime. But the problem is Netanyahu is pointing to Biden's public statements about Israel's right to defend itself. And he is asserting that the U.S. fully supports what he's doing. And on top of that, the U.S. gives Israel $3.8 billion with a B per year in military financing. On top of that, the U.S. funded the Iron Dome missile defense system. On top of that, the U.S. often blocks criticism of Israel at the UN, including over the weekend where there was a UN statement condemning the Israeli military response and calling for a ceasefire. So the world thinks we are complicit, you know, and a lot of Muslims are going to see the images of Israeli police raiding the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, and be outraged by it. And I worry about all the security challenge that could come on top of all the moral ones we talked about. So I'm, I'm pretty worried here. I just can't understand the national security or geopolitical risks in publicly calling for a ceasefire. Like, I don't understand. But it's like one of those things where like there's so much, you know, and and Rhodes talked about this on Positive the World last week about how sort of like the response is different this time, but the talking points haven't changed for a lot of like Democrats in power or specifically in in the Biden administration. And if you don't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy, there's like all this like sort of conventional language 
that doesn't really it doesn't make a lot of sense to people outside government. And so when the Biden administration sounds like they're nego- they're you know behind the scenes doing diplomacy where they're calling for a ceasefire but they won't call for a ceasefire publicly, that makes no sense to anyone. <laughs> you know it's like it doesn't make sense to me and I pay somewhat attention to this. Imagine just like regular people like why the hell isn't Joe Biden want a ceasefire? Why isn't he calling on both sides to stop? There's people dying every day like why wouldn't he do that? What what's the problem? Yeah, it's the um it does sort of strike me that it's there's a kind of like I think it is it has been true of Joe Biden as a candidate. It has been true in the early days of, of of Joe Biden as president that there is a real reluctance to be pulled into news cycles that are the not yeah. the news cycles they want. That this is not the topic they want to be talking about, and this is not the focus of their foreign policy. That they don't want to be mired in this. I'm not defending that morally. I'm def- I'm talking about the politics of it, and so. You can see in their rhetoric this hope of trying to push for a ceasefire without changing the language that they're using to kind of bring less attention to their place inside of this debate, that the role of the administration itself in the conflict. And it just seems like what we are seeing and what I think they will see and react to is that to the point that that John just made, that that the situation has changed, that the language has to change and that that is not really tenable, that actually you do have to say more now, uh, even if you're reluctant to, because you don't want to be central to the international debate about the conflict. Does that make sense? Yes. I think the policy framework has changed. I also, I don't have any evidence to prove this right now, but I think the political context has changed uh, and that young people and progressives are looking at what's happening and they're thinking, that is morally wrong, and I want someone to talk about it. So my experience, just like stepping back in foreign policy uh, and, and foreign policy and press, was often you would have very big brains who sit in very important meetings, and they talk about you know soft versus hard power and all these big esoteric things. <laughs> and when it comes time to write the press guidance, the mantra is basically, give them as little as possible, say as little as possible, let's deal with this behind the scenes. And I just... That's not how the world works. The rubber meets the road, as you speechwriters know, on policy when you say something publicly. That's how the world is going to yeah. hear about Joe Biden's views on this issue and every other issue. So, you know, I think it's a real mistake not to give Jen Psaki or the State Department spokespeople or others who are speaking for Joe Biden on these issues the room to state the obvious, which is that we're incredibly worried about civilian casualties, that there should be a ceasefire, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned how this is generational, too. I think one of the generational aspects to this is people paying attention to this for the first time and just hearing, you know, your mantra from when when you were in government about how, like, there's there should be no daylight between the United States and Israel. And, and like, why? <laughs> like, like, there, you know, daylight even, with even our best. Right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like Canada. all of our allies around the world, when our allies are acting like assholes, we should be able to tell them. That's like what a, that's like what a, that's what a good ally is. Right. Like right. the idea that our alliances are beyond criticism when when someone in a nation or a government in a nation that we're allied with does something that we don't like, that we can't criticize that is I think that strikes most people in this country as bizarre. But I will say it it, it comes from a different time. A time in which the United States was really keeping Israel in existence by being its defender right. and being its stalwart. I'm not saying, and, and it not not that what you're saying is wrong. It's that it just speaks to how much has shifted, how the power imbalance has has changed. You know that that there was a that like there's been more recognition from Israel's uh, Arab neighbors of its right to exist. That has not changed the fundamental um, 
dynamic inside of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, but it does, I think the reason that that you can be more critical, and actually the reason even the Bush administration was more critical is because they saw it as a necessary way to build um, distance for the for their ability to be a um, an interlocutor, for their ability to be a um, broker. Yeah. Look, also yeah. though, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, he seems pretty cool with expressing uh, his views on policy, including when they disagree on areas like Iran. So <laughs> I'm not sure why we should take a, a different tact. Also, you know, right, love it. You mentioned uh, Trump and Jared Kushner's, you know, uh, Abraham Accords, where basically, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. gave tons of weapons, basically, to autocratic regimes that agreed to announce normalization uh, treaties with Israel, even though a lot of the places we were talking about, like the UAE, basically had relations with Israel anyway. I believe that those Abraham Accords actually exacerbated the underlying tensions we saw in Sheikh Jarrah because for a long time, the Palestinians felt like, well, you know, our Arab neighbors had our back. And all of a sudden, uh, these these accords, which look, I agree, I, I want Israel to normalize relations with all its neighbors. I want there to be peace between you know Israel and Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it, it exacerbated the tensions with the underlying Palestinian issue because the Palestinians were like, well, we have nowhere to turn now. We're, we're desperate, more desperate than before. Uh, is there anything that the Biden administration could be doing or should be doing right now uh, in addition to calling for a ceasefire, Tommy? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's sort of two distinct issues that are inextricably linked. Like one is just stopping this immediate war, right? And the second is is the longer term underlying problem. So I think they need to call for an immediate ceasefire. They need to do so publicly. That is like the key right now. But long term, like they have to try to find a way to get like I, I don't I don't want Joe Biden to do what we did, which is have a gigantic summit at the White House and bring in, you know, five leaders and host a bunch of negotiations. Like I, I don't know that it, that was a great use of time. But I do think they need to get the two parties back into some sort of negotiation or or peace process where there's at least conversations happening about these underlying issues where they're trying to empower the, the Palestinian Authority so people aren't turning to Hamas. Uh, that approach and that process should include offering incentives for doing the right thing, but also a pressure campaign that says, you know, the U.S., we will condition or or cut off military aid if it's used to annex the West Bank. Or if we continue to have human rights concerns about the targeting of civilians, I just I, we cannot have this approach where Netanyahu is perceived to have a, a blank check. And also, just you know, for for people, we constantly hear from people, from listeners to this show, who say, "Look, I live in a blue state. I'm frustrated. I feel like I have no power or agency in Washington." Now is your time. Call your representative. Call Democrats. Uh, who represents you. Ask them to make a public statement calling for a ceasefire. Ask them to pressure President Biden to do so. It will really matter if reps hear about this stuff on the phones. Yeah, very much agree. It's a good thing for everyone to do. Um, All right. When we come back, Dr. Anthony Fauci talks to Lovett about the CDC's new mask guidelines. Pod Save America is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. alone? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. 
The experts at Fast Growing Trees curate thousands of plants for all climates, locations, and needs. They're available 24-7. You can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, landscape design, and how best to take care of your plants. Landscaping, you know, it's, it's, they may, you know, you get, it's expensive. expensive. It's expensive. And honestly, like, it's, it can be harder than you think to keep these plants alive. We've yeah. killed off a couple of them in our For day. sure. But, you know, with, with Fast Growing Trees, you got this uh, support line 24-7. You call and you say, hey, how do I keep my lemon tree going? And they say, water it more or yeah. something. Anyway, very excited about Fast Growing Trees. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And Podsave America listeners can get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code CROOKED at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com. Use the code CROOKED at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code CROOKED. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Last week, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky announced that fully vaccinated people can safely return to activities indoors or outdoors without masks or distancing. President Biden said the announcement of the news marked a great day, but many have questions about this change, what led to it, what it means for returning to normal life. Here to help is Chief Medical Advisor to President Biden and friend of the pod, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. So first of all, can you explain what we've learned about the vaccines that led to this decision? Yeah, there was an accumulation of of data, scientific evidence that was really accruing over the previous few weeks that led to the decision on the part of the CDC to make this recommendation. First of all, the real world effectiveness of the vaccines became readily apparent as more and more publications came in showing that the effectiveness of the vaccine was actually even better than was shown in the clinical trials, namely the trials that led to the emergency use authorization. Highly effective, number one. Number two, it worked quite well against variants. And remember, one of the reasons why we told people who were vaccinated that they should wear masks indoor was the possibility that a variant might infect them. They may then pass it on to someone else. That's the second reason. The third reason is that uh, studies are now coming in to show that not only does the vaccine protect against symptomatic infection, it is highly protective against asymptomatic infection, which means if you get infected, it's very unlikely, number one. And number two, it is extremely unlikely that you'll pass it on to someone else because the level of virus in your nasopharynx if you have a breakthrough infection, despite vaccination, that the virus will be at a very low level. So highly effective, good against the variants, and you don't transmit it when you do get infected. Those three things together prompted the CDC to make that announcement. Have you seen any bad breakthrough cases? Like how common is that? Like it seems like breakthrough cases in some case, like with the Yankees means A small amount of virus, probably not transmissible. It's why you're changing the guidance around even testing people who have been vaccinated. But are you seeing any serious cases of people who have been vaccinated? You know, to my knowledge, no, but you've got to be careful because when you have millions and millions and millions of people vaccinated, you're always going to get exceptions. But if you look at the overwhelming trend and majority is that when there are breakthrough infections, they generally are either without symptoms or with minimal symptoms. And the more we learn, you're going to find for absolutely certain, John, you're going to find that sooner or later, somebody's going to get a breakthrough infection, get seriously ill and probably die. 
that probably has already happened. But remember, when the denominator is tens of millions of people, you're going to see virtually one or more of anything. So there was a sign on uh, just this morning on the coffee shop by my house that said, everyone needs a mask, even if you're vaccinated. And then I see some pundits saying things basically like, if you don't take off your mask right now and you're vaccinated, you're as bad as an anti-vaxxer. You might as well be Marjorie Taylor Greene. How do you... (laughs) So... So, Heaven forbid. (laughs) You have been at this place where politics meets science, where rigorous study meets like human messy behavior. How do you think about that? How do you think about translating what we've learned and updated in real time to information people can actually use in their daily lives as we return to normal? Well, what you have to do is you always have to make sure that the science, the evidence and the data guide whatever you do. But you also got to be very careful with the messaging. You've got to be crystal clear in your messaging. You've got to know what your audience is and what your message is. And when you put those two things together, you can avoid confusion. Like getting the point that you mentioned, the very fact that the CDC says that we want people who are vaccinated to know that they are really safe, even when they go indoors without a mask. That does not mean that people who feel they want to continue to wear a mask should not wear a mask. It's not a mandate to take your mask off. I think Mm -hmm. that's what people are misinterpreting. It's essentially a scientific statement saying that if you are fully vaccinated, your risk is really very low, not only outdoors, but also indoors. It's saying no more than that for the people who are not vaccinated, all the recommendations remain the same. So that's the thing that I think get conflated and people get confused that now this is a mandate, take your mask off. No. And in fact, there may be some organizations or stores or businesses that say, you know, I get it that people who are vaccinated are protected both outdoors and indoors. But coming into my shop or coming into my establishment, that they're going to be people who are not vaccinated and some people that are infected. So as far as I'm concerned, if you want to come into my shop or my establishment, you have to wear a mask. That's perfectly fine. And I believe that people who are vaccinated should respect those mandates of independent organizations who feel, I'm glad you're vaccinated. Thank you very much. But If you want to come into my place, you got to wear a mask. You know why? Because I can verify that you're vaccinated. I don't know. We don't have a vaccine passport. That's the important thing. Do you worry at all, though, that the new guidance kind of leaves people to have to make that kind of choice, basically saying, look, I I trust the science, but I don't trust people. I don't trust people to trust the science. And now I'm on my own as a store owner to protect my my staff or I'm a, I'm a person who works at this place and I'm going to keep my mask on because I just don't trust the people coming in and out of my store. Well, that's fun. I actually have a great deal of empathy and sympathy for those people. And I would favor them being able to make their own choice depending upon how they feel about things. So if a shop owner or an establishment owner feels that they want to be doubly sure that they're not having people coming into their shop infected and infecting other people, that they say, fine, anywhere else you want to go, you can walk in without a mask. But if you come into my place, you have to wear a mask. Remember, the recommendations were made to assure people 
who are vaccinated, that they are really safe now because the vaccines are highly, highly protective. So now if you feel comfortable in taking a mask off when you're indoors, that's fine. You should feel confident that you're going to be okay. That's all those recommendations are saying. You know, part of the reason there was this reaction to this news around maybe unvaccinated people not wearing masks is it's similar to some of the it's a it's fear around misinformation. It's a fear about people not following the science. You've come face to face with it, even in in Senate hearings. Uh, you've had these heated exchanges with people like Dr. Rand Paul, in which you've kind of been confronted with distortions, confronted with misinformation. You had this look on your face the last time you went up against him. You look like uh, his neighbor during the leaf dispute right before it turned pretty (laughs) ugly. (laughs) Are you surprised that even we're not talking about Facebook memes, talking about United States senators spreading misinformation? Is that has that surprised you over the last 14 months? Uh, it has. It's unfortunate. It it has surprised me. I wish that that were not the case. But, you know, that's the world we're living in. You have to accept it and be able to adapt to it. But that is the world we're living in, unfortunately. What have you learned as a communicator, as one of the most prominent scientists, doctors in the public mind about how to combat right wing information, how to how to face it when it's led to, you know, reluctance that may impact our ability to get the country vaccinated. Yeah. You know, it is not an easy uh, thing to do, but you've got to, you know, very, very carefully and assiduously stick with the facts, stick with the data. Don't be confrontational. I mean, don't just get kicked around by anybody for sure. But (laughs) but but don't but don't look for a fight. I mean, that's the point. Uh, You don't want to do that. You want to just stick with the science If somebody says something that's incorrect, just respectfully, the way I try to do, point out to them that that's incorrect information. How has your use of the mask changed over the last even week? Has your behavior changed? Have you have you followed the guidance uh, in new ways? Um, Yes. I mean, I I have. I've always felt comfortable. uh, But I think symbolically now when I'm indoors, I don't always have my mask on because I'm in a situation like now I'm around vaccinated people and I'm in my establishment. So I don't walk around with the mask on all the time. But when I'm in a situation where people would be uncomfortable with people without masks, I wear a mask. And um, did you uh, hurt your arm uh, when you voted for Joe Biden? Because you voted so hard for him (laughs) that you may have like punched through the table. You don't have to respond. I'm not going to respond to that for sure, but. But your arm's okay. Yeah, my arm's fine. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Good to be with you, John. Take care. All right. Love it. Well, I'll take that as a um, a yes on voting for Joe Biden. What about you? (laughs) I don't think it was. I think he. um, he You've been dying to ask that question forever. (laughs) At least his arm's okay. At least his arm's okay. And I'm going to start a podcast call, uh, where I just say things at Anthony Fauci and he laughs and doesn't respond because to respond would be a political nightmare. <laughs> Love it. I haven't heard it yet, but do you think that you guys are going to be best friends now? Uh, you know, um, I think he would, I think like a lot of um, really serious professional people, they really would best to keep me in small doses. <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> But uh, no, it was good to talk to him. And I think um, 
I still feel as though like he's basically saying that he understands why, you know, a restaurant or a store might say, let's keep the mask on because we don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. But it does still speak to the kind of challenge of like telling people the truth about the science when that meets like messy human behavior, because that does mean like, you know, Dr. Fauci understands, we all understand that it'll be people who are unvaccinated who uh, will pretend that they are or simply not address it and just stop wearing their masks. Uh, I think the good thing is what he's basically saying is if you are vaccinated, you don't need to worry about that. I thought it was really helpful when he said, you know, this is not a mandate to take your mask off. Um, and I've also been thinking about this since the since the guidance, like the C- a lot of this has to do with the specific mission of the CDC and what the CDC's role is. Right. The CDC's role is not to issue edicts about how to behave. They're called guidelines for a reason and guidance for a reason. The CDC is trying to base its guidance off the best science. And what they're saying, what Fauci was just saying is if you are vaccinated you are protected. You are protected against the variants. You're protected from getting you know, sick and uh, you're not going to transmit the virus to other people. So it's basically a scientific opinion that if you are vaccinated, you're good. You can do whatever. Now, like if you are unvaccinated or you haven't been vaccinated yet or you're immunocompromised or you're a child under 12, right, who isn't getting vaccinated, then, then yeah, you not only still need to wear masks, but you need to be cautious of sort of crowded areas and going in without a mask and all that remains. But if you're vaccinated, the science says you're good and your chance of getting sick and hospitalized is incredibly low. That's all people need to know. And then they can make their own decisions. Yeah. 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 I I do think, though, it's like uh, one of the lessons I think we will be learning as we look back on this period is like what happens when scientific based guidance meets human behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think all of that can be true while it still puts local officials, it put business owners, it puts ordinary people at times in a difficult situation because it's like, well, I trust Dr. Fauci, but I don't know that I trust my, these strangers. And I don't know that I trust, uh, other people to follow the guidance. And I feel like, and so I, I, I don't have yeah. a good, there's no good answer to it, but it's a, it's a problem. No, but I think, I think the, the, the answer is if you're vaccinated, you don't have to worry about trusting all those other people. Now, if you have other, yeah. if you're one of those groups of people I talked about, you know, my, my mother, of course, like her first call was like, well, you know, you t- if you take Charlie into a grocery store now and everyone's masked, that's one thing. What if you take him into a grocery store and now no one's masked? Like, that's something you have to worry about until there's vaccines for kids. It's like, no, I, I get that. Now, the chances of a-, a child his age getting COVID is incredibly low also. But that is something you have to be concerned about. But if I'm vaccinated, you you don't have to worry about that. I guess my takeaway from all of this is just frustration at how little grace and empathy we give anyone involved in these issues. Right? Like, my mom is yeah. older, <laughs> right? My mom is older. She is more of a risk profile, so she's going to keep wearing her mask. Fine, right? Like, also, if you read the newspaper this weekend, you might have learned that some of the New York Yankees caught COVID after yeah, being vaccinated. Yeah, I was right? talking about that. Right, like, if you get into the details why, like, it's actually okay, right? They're asymptomatic. Because the Yankees suck. The Yank- in- yes, love it. Look yes, you. love there it. You go. Yes, there you Thank go. You suck. Thank you. But you're like, just, you're such a Boston bro. Now that you've been doing, I'm, this a, I'm a Mets. Excuse me. Well, like I get why people <laughs> might be scared, right? But we also we give public health officials no space to be wrong or to evolve. Like it, it was a new coronavirus. Of course, guidelines are going to change over. Like I experienced this 
in a microcosm with Benghazi, right? Like the intelligence picture changed over time. And when we try to update it, you're accused of lying or hiding the truth or some nefarious reasons. It's like, actually, sometimes you're doing the best you can with the information you have available to you at that moment. And it turns out to be wrong. And it changes a lot. It changes like day by day. <laughs> and there's a giant apparatus, well-funded, yeah. with like a big megaphone telling everyone that you're lying and full of shit. I mean, six months ago, the president was injecting bleach. Yes. You and know, like Fauci. this has been one of the great, like every, of course there should be grace. Like there's a once in a century pandemic. The first time doctors and experts have had to communicate with the American people through not just television, not just radio, but social media. And uh, it has, you know, of course there will be lessons. And of course it's hard. Yeah. Just don't judge people who are still wearing masks. Don't judge people who aren't. All right. Before we go, we just want to run through a few big stories to keep an eye on this week. Uh, I'll start. Big news from the Supreme Court this morning. They've agreed to take up a case that involves the constitutionality of Mississippi's ban on most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy which could give the 6-3 conservative court a chance to reconsider Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is especially alarming because you're starting to see these bans uh, that Mississippi passed um, passed with more frequency. Texas just banned abortions after only six weeks. Voters in Lubbock, Texas, recently passed an ordinance making it the largest city to ban nearly all abortions. Uh, and in just the last three days of April, three days in April, 28 restrictions on abortion were signed into law across seven states. So... There's not a lot we can do about the Supreme Court except wait for a decision. But, you know, advocates are pressing the Biden administration to do more to protect abortion access, including ending the ban on abortion coverage for Medicaid recipients, which is known as the Hyde Amendment. Um, and the Biden administration has already undid some Trump era restrictions. Uh, and the FDA recently allowed access to prescription abortion medication through the mail. So that was progress. Uh, you know, one thing that I, about all this, Elise Hogue, who's the president of NARAL, you know, she was tweeting this morning. Uh, here's a reminder as we think about upcoming elections. The GOP position is to ban abortion entirely, no exceptions. It's in their platform. Ask every single candidate who wants your vote how they'll expand abortion access. Local, state, federal, everyone has a role. So we uh, should not all sit around feeling helpless just waiting for the Supreme Court. It's good advice. Also, also say um, uh, just, uh, you know, Stephen Breyer, retire bitch. And also... Uh, <laughs> One, just one. Gonna get him. It is. It is going to persuade him. I know it. <laughs> it's, honestly, it's, it's the best argument I have. I don't know how to make it more sophisticated. Uh, one. One other. One other piece of this too is, uh, despite Breyer's uh, protestations that the court is not a political body, it of course is, and I've seen um, you know court watchers and others make this point, but it's also worth keeping in mind that, uh, you know, this will inevitably become a debate over whether or not the court will overturn Roe, but the court will see that. And we should just be aware that it is also pernicious for them to uphold Roe in some uh, uh, ostensible way while gutting uh, women, uh, while gutting access to health care for uh, women. Yeah. And we should just be aware that, like, don't let that messaging or that frame take hold because there's a number of ways that they can restrict access to health care without overturning Roe. Yeah, they're constantly trying to chip away. Yep. Uh, Tommy, what, what story are you keeping an eye on? Yes. So uh, on Tuesday of this week, so May 18th, Pennsylvania is going to hold a primary election. So they're going to vote on a bunch of important stuff. Uh, but the thing I want to focus on for today is the primary challenge to Larry Krasner, who's Philadelphia's district attorney. Krasner is part of a, a not big enough yet, but a wave of progressive prosecutors 
who have been elected recently and who are trying to do radical things uh, like hold the police accountable for misconduct. It shouldn't be radical. Uh, they're trying to generally reduce mass incarceration. And Krasner is running against a guy he actually fired. And this person is taking more of a law and order approach, uh, accusing Krasner of being soft on crime, all the usual tropes. So we're watching this race really closely because district attorneys are incredibly powerful. Uh, we don't pay enough attention to their elections. And you know, traditionally, DAs have won by pledging to be tougher on crime, promising to lock people up. Krasner took a totally different approach. And this race will go a long ways towards showing whether or not that's politically viable or not. So uh, if you live in Philly, vote for Larry Krasner. Everyone should be uh, figuring out who their own DA is. Because this is absolutely critical if you want to reduce mass incarceration, if you want a more accountable police force in your neighborhood. So uh, an important race to watch on Tuesday. I, I will just say, too, I was reading about this election and one of Krasner's supporters, who's a, a, a uh, legislator in Pennsylvania, uh, they're worried about low turnout because a lot of other people are paying attention in this race. And he said, you're always concerned about maintaining interest in non-sexy races. It was sexy four years ago because it was a new thing. Now he's our guy. It's not as sexy. And like, that's going to be a problem up and down the ballot in, in the midterms in 2022. Again, like, and this, this is the danger for progressives and Democrats in saying, okay, we all worked really hard in 2020. We, we elected some progressives. We elected some Democrats. Joe Biden's in the White House. We can all sort of like chill out now. You can't. <laughs> you can't chill out because every time that every time there is an election of a progressive or Democrat, there is a backlash. And so the forces on the other side, they're going to be excited. They're going to turn out. And if we don't match their turnout, we're going to lose. And I think that's, you know, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. But that's something for everyone to watch out for. This is the, this is the problem with, with cancel culture. You know, Larry Kresner isn't sexy with his pants on, can't take his pants off, you know? I guess he could take them off. I'm, yeah, I'm not, a, not, not, not with Twitter. Depends on the context. Okay, Barry Weiss here is the third, uh, the third host today. Oh, no, it got in there. <laughs> Love it. What's what are your, these, uh, what what are are these sub stacks I'm reading? <laughs> Love it. What are you keeping an eye on? You got to watch your kids in the sub stacks, all right? Keep an eye on those sub stacks your kids are reading. All right. You never know what they're going to creep into. Stick with the message box. Don't go anywhere else. Yeah. Message <laughs> yeah, box. Don't click out of the matches box. We got you only the one sub stack. There are a lot of great sub stacks. Don't come at me. The Senate Rules Committee held a hearing and vote for the For the People Act, passing it out of committee in a party line vote nine to nine. The bill's path to becoming law was always uh, tricky because it would require changing the filibuster and unanimity among all 50 Senate Dems. But this week, Senator Joe Manchin said he's opposed to the For the People Act. And in favor of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is more targeted and, and looks at addressing the consequences of a very bad ruling by Chief Justice uh, John Roberts uh, 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 gutting the Voting Rights Act. Senate Democrats met for the first time to make a game plan around the bills and protecting democracy, where uh, Senator Kirsten Cinema asked Chuck Schumer, what's the plan to pass this, which is a bit like a beaver putting like the finishing touches on a dam and then turning to the fish and being like, how do you plan to get down river? Uh, so uh, I don't know. Like, I, I imagine that was wild. Uh, that was wild. I, I imagine like Brian Schatz's eyes rolled so hard in his head <laughs> that it like made a noise. Yes. I uh, too. Yeah. Ha you have to change the filibuster that you support. You're the you're the reason.
you're the reason. Uh, so that's, um, you know, something to watch. Yeah, if you if you care about voting rights, it's not looking good right now. So everyone needs to sort of redouble their efforts to uh, call their Democratic senators, specifically if yours is Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema. But I mean, look, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is incredibly important. And if they could pass that, that would be enormous progress. It basically reinstates the, the preclearance that um, John Roberts and, and his court sort of gutted um, back in, in 2013. And so states um, would not be able to just change their voting laws without preclearance from the federal government. So it's an it's an important law. But again, even Joe Manchin being for that, I'm like, OK, well, are you willing to get rid of the filibuster to pass that law? Because so far, the only Republican we know who supports it is Lisa Murkowski had co-sponsored it uh, a while back. So that's one. You'd still need nine more. So what's your plan? Kirsten Sinema should ask Joe Manchin, what's your plan to pass that? You should ask in the mirror. Also uh. ask in the mirror. What's your plan? What's your Just plan? Anyway, all all of us, all these people worshiping at the altar of fake bipartisanship in lieu of doing stuff. It's bad. It's bad. Well, keep up those calls. Keep up the pressure. Um, all right. Thank you, Anthony Fauci, for joining us today. Twice on the pod for Fauci now. He's, he's a he friend loves of the pod us. status. He loves um, coming here. <laughs> Next time we'll get him to admit he'll vote for... Uh, Vote for Biden. You voted for Biden, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you pin him down on that the third time. So I have to do a quick clarification uh, and apology to my mother. Last week, I told a story about the time when our cat died. Uh, oh, did that cat- not go over well? No, the cat in question, uh, her name was Snooper. She had a heart attack midair uh, and uh, died while trying to jump onto the, the, the kitchen table to get to her food. I think I was about 10 years old at the time. Um, I made it sound like my mother's reaction was uh, callous, perhaps. In fact, we all were very sad. We loved the cat. <laughs> even though the cat was incredibly mean and used to slash my face over and over and over again. Of course, we, we, we love the cats. We love all our animals. We had lots of animals. Um, but my mom just wanted me to point out that the reason the cat was left in the basement for days for my father to deal with was because it was the middle of winter and the ground was frozen. And you can't bury a dead cat in your backyard if you can't get the shovel in the ground. So. Oh, more. that's where that saying comes from. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> So that's the latest on Snooper, the heart Sorry, attack. Sorry, Luis. And, uh, I didn't take it that way, by the way. I didn't see it as callous when, listen, when you told it the first time. Uh, my, I didn't no, take it that way. Nothing, that's because you know my mom. Nothing about her is callous. She's uh, the, the nicest human I, I've ever known. And look, uh, what are you going right, to do? Now we're doing Tommy politics. Yeah, now we're doing my politics. The cat fucking died. <laughs> look, that's fault. what the end of the podcast is for. It's for corrections, particularly corrections that our family demands. Yeah, and grudges. Speaking of, still no apology from Larry David. And the pod. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.